Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here with our co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Good morning. How are you doing? Good on this good day for good news on the economy. Darn right. We'll get to that in a moment, because today we will be focusing on the economy and the fiscal outlook for America's states and cities. What Susan just mentioned, the latest GDP data, the the data for the fourth quarter suggests that we're in a Goldilocks in the three bears economy, not too hot, not too cold, and maybe just right. But challenges, they remain. For one thing, federal pandemic aid is nearing its end. State tax revenues are slowing. One of our guests will talk about that. Maybe two of our guests will talk about that. And some states and municipalities like California and New York City, they're grappling with operating deficits. And then they're spending those billions of dollars of new infrastructure and inflation reduction act. That's good news, but a lot of uh, bottlenecks and certainly a challenge in itself. And of course, this is a presidential election year, uh, needless to say, with lots of consequences for everyone, no matter how it turns out. Now, fortunately, we have a great group of experts to illuminate these big questions starting with Clarence Anthony, Executive Director of the National League of Cities and CEO as well, Chief Economist Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics, State Fiscal Guru Eric Kim from Fitch Ratings, Colorado State Budget Director Mark Ferrandino, and Mayor Kim Norton of Rochester, Minnesota. That's the home of the Mayo Clinic and their huge investment. I'm sure she'll be willing to tell you all about. Welcome to you all. Now, before we begin, a few words. We're coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and the Penn IUR websites, and also on the special briefing podcast. We've taken your questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, this special briefing is made possible with the support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. And now let me hand the mic over to Susan Wachter to introduce our leadoff guest. Susan? Yes, thank you so much, Bill. It's my great pleasure to introduce Clarence Anthony, who, as you just heard, is the CEO and executive director of the National League of Cities, and so very thoughtful on these issues. And we thank you, Clarence Anthony, for your contribution to our recent Penn Institute of Urban Research, Urban Link discussion of one of the major challenges to cities, which is remote work and your thoughtful comments on that. Of course, there are other challenges as well, but there are creative solutions, and we will hear from about both from Clarence Anthony. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Susan and Bill. Thank you all for providing me this opportunity to be a part of this webinar. You know, I'm honored to uh, represent the National League of Cities, which is the largest and oldest association representing cities, towns, and villages, and we're turning 100 years old this year. So there's a lot to talk about as it relates to that. But the truth is that the past several years have been challenging for our nation's municipalities, but they've also been full of opportunities and achievement. Local leaders have been asked to do a lot 
for their residents since COVID-19 first hit in their communities nearly four years ago. And there's a lot of challenges that we continue to face, whether it's dealing with housing supply and affordability, homelessness, figuring out how to effectively manage the influx of migrants and asylum seekers entering their communities in large numbers, navigating the growing impacts of climate change and strategies, dealing with rail safety. There is a lot on the plates of local leaders, but the city leaders are also resilient and optimistic. They're determined to build their communities back better than even before in tandem with their state and federal partners. And the great news is that those dreams really are becoming reality in so many communities. A lot of this rebuilding, reimagining has been made possible by the unprecedented investment in cities in the past four years, including the America Rescue Plan Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Thanks to the funds in those pivotal pieces of legislation, America's cities, towns, and villages are making a strong and sustainable fiscal recovery from the recession that the pandemic brought on. In fact, NLC, in partnership with the National Association of Counties and Brookings, have been tracking these funds, and we found that over 335 local governments have developed over 13,000 impactful projects using these funds to meet the needs of their own residents. That much money was needed and has been used for everything from setting up vaccine clinics and target neighborhoods in those early days to simply keeping municipal workers employed through the uncertainty during that time. Almost 40% of local government's ARPA funds have been used to bolster municipal operations, which was essentially important to the height during the height of the pandemic. And over the last three years, cities have budgeted cautiously through the uncertainty and have been generally good stewards of the public dollars that they received. According to Treasury data, as of last July, communities had obligated about 60% of those opera dollars in total. And the truth is, with an obligation deadline coming up at the end of this year and two additional years to spend those funds, city governments still have a lot more work to get done. Today, uh, the economic future for cities like looks really bright even with the challenges that we've seen. NLC research shows that while inflation remained high over the last year, cities have seen their tax bases surge as people have returned to their pre-pandemic habits. Property values have risen in some communities and unemployment rates have dropped to a historic low. This has resulted in higher than expected sales, property and income tax revenue which has helped local governments balance their budgets and make critical investments in the recent years. In 2024, we think that cities can expect to see the trends continue and experience growth in revenue as well as property taxes. The growth in tax revenue has helped to sustain funding for public service, infrastructure projects that some communities had just really delayed over the years. On top of that, cities generally have been cautious about their budgeting strategies over the last few years, which have allowed reserves 
to really accumulate that will help for the long run. All in all, I'd say that we've been able to forge through some of these challenges that we have seen, and local leaders and their residents should be able to look forward to a more, I'd say, optimistic and stable economic environment 2024 and beyond. The National League of Cities and our members, we stand ready to work with all industries to make sure that our investments are done appropriately and that we have a sustainable future in America. We know that with good fiscal management and strategic planning, our cities will continue to thrive and to prosper in years to come. And I'm excited about this conversation because I know that if municipalities are strong and local governments are strong, our nation is strong. So again, thank you all very much for having this opportunity to share my thoughts. I'm going to turn it over to Bill, who will take us to the next presenter. Look forward to conversation. Thanks, Clarence. And I'm going to turn it back over to, to, to Susan to, to introduce her, her buddy and uh, Pennsylvania neighbor, Mark Sandy. Thank you very much, Bill. And thank you, Clarence, for those words of optimism and hope for our future of investment for a sustainable future together National League of Cities, mayors, and we are going to hear from local state officials, but first, on this investment opportunities. But first, we will be hearing, as Bill just said, from Mark Zandi, who is chief economist of Moody's Analytics and often a guest here. Mark, we heard some positive news this morning. Tell us about what your outlook is going forward. Yeah, great news. We got, uh, I think you mentioned GDP for the fourth quarter. It was over 3% for the quarter, well above expectations. You know, Susan, I look at the uh, table from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the folks that put this data together, and you look down the column and you always see at least a few negative numbers. The thing about this report, no negative numbers. Everything contributed to growth, the consumers, businesses, trade, Government, state and local government, all the roars are rowing in the same direction. And the really cool thing was that despite the very strong growth, again, plus 3%, inflation is uh, is low. Uh, the uh, core consumer expenditure deflator, this is uh, excluding food and energy. This is what the Federal Reserve, the inflation measure of the Federal Reserve targets when they say we want a 2% inflation rate. Well, they got it. It was 2% in the fourth quarter. And that's after a 2% in the third quarter. So it just feels really good. Uh, and all the trend lines feel good as well. So good performance for 2023. And remember back a year ago, all the calls for recession? Not me, but there were a lot of calls for recession. And not only did we not get a recession, we got a fantastic year for the economy. And it does make you feel good about uh, 2024. Obviously, lots of risks. Uh, but the last thing I'll say uh, is... There are risks. There are things that can go off the rails. But I'll have to, uh, I, I will say that for the first time in a long time, the risks are more symmetric. It's not only that things could turn out to be worse than anticipated, but they could actually turn out to be better than anticipated. And we could talk about that as well. So I I think the word is giddy. I, I feel really good. <laughs> well, let me keep, uh, keep to this giddy. We will have more questions yeah. for you later, Mark. But right now, let's keep to this giddy theme, which we can exalt. This is really good, very good news. What is your forecast for this year's is 3% last quarter, 3.3%. Are you forecasting 3.3 or better? No, I mean, for calendar year 2023, we got the 2.5, kind of the consensus. And I think it would, as a prudent planner, you would 
go with the consensus that the the uh, economy's so-called potential is about two. That's the rate of growth that's sufficient to generate enough jobs to keep unemployment stable and low, but not generate inflationary pressures. That's two percent, and I I think that's the best forecast for 2024. But again, the thing that surprised on the upside in 23 was the supply side of the economy really kicked into high gear. We got a lot more labor force growth. A lot of that's immigration. There's a lot of challenges posed by the strong immigration, but one of the benefits is it, you know, it allows for more job creation without creating inflation. And productivity growth was also much stronger. It's picked up in a lot of debate, reasonable debate about whether the, how sustainable that is, but it feels like it might be sustainable. So if we get more labor force growth, more productivity growth, the supply side of the economy means it's growing more quickly. It means we can have a stronger growing economy without inflation. So, you know, again, prudent planner says 2%, but uh, I would say there's a potential, uh, there's a possibility it could end up being better than that. So there is room for more productivity and supply side growth as there was last year. I think so. You know, there's a lot of dis- debate discussion around things like artificial intelligence and remote work. I think those things are still on the margin in terms of what it means for productivity. I think that's to play out over the next year or decade. But I think the thing that really might be kicking into gear is, you remember all the folks that quit their jobs back in the teeth of the pandemic? The quit rates were very, very extraordinarily high. Well, those folks took jobs that are more suited to their talents, their skills, their education. If you look at the surveys, the conference board runs this really cool survey about how people feel about their jobs. They're feeling about as good about their job as they've ever in the survey, and that goes back several decades. So I think people, and it takes a little bit of time, you move from one job to the next, and it takes a little bit of time to kind of get up the learning curve. But I suspect folks are getting up the learning curve, and they're more productive. So this could have more legs than we than we think, and we could get some improvement and continued growth and productivity. And then as we move to the second half of the decade, then, then AI kicks in, and I know there's you know a lot of back and forth around remote work but my own sense of that is that ultimately that's going to be productivity enhancing as you know businesses figure out how to optimize around remote work you know exactly what that means and the technology continues to improve to empower remote work we're going to get uh, more productivity gains there so i'm feeling tentatively because forecasting everything anything is hard forecasting productivity is particularly difficult I'm coming around to the view that maybe we've got more juice there than we anticipate, which means we can get more growth again without uh, generating inflation, which would be very encouraging. Well, we'll surely come back to this in our Q&A, but now back to Bill. Well, thanks, Susan. A giddy economist from the dismal science. That's uh, that, that's quite something. It sounds like the 90s all me. over again. That's me. Uh, so, and I, it's Today, so, not always. And I want to remind our giddy panelists and our giddy audience that you're all tuned in to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archived editions of all the special briefings, including this one, are on our websites and the special briefing podcast. And now let's get back to the year ahead with Eric Kim. What's in store for states and what does this all mean for their credit ratings? That's your core business, as I recall. Eric? It is. Thank you, Bill. And thanks to the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR for inviting me back. So as Bill mentioned, I manage the U.S. state government's team at Fitch Ratings. I'll take a, just a few minutes to talk about our outlook and expectations for state fiscal conditions and some of the challenges and potential risks that we see on the horizon. So whenever you talk about state budgets, it's really critical to set that economic baseline. Tax revenue correlates directly with economic performance, and sometimes immediately, sometimes with a bit of a lag. 
But we do need to understand what's happening in the economy if we want to understand what's happening in state budgets. And Mark provided a great overview just now. I'm just going to highlight a few points that Fitch's house view on the economic outlook gives it's important in understanding our expectations for state fiscal conditions. So in December, our economics team published its quarterly global economic outlook. And as we were just talking about, 2023 was a surprisingly good year. So good, in fact, that Fitch took off its recession forecast for 2024 in our last update. We'll own up to it, Mark. We were one of those many in the consensus that we're expecting a recession, but we've pulled back on that. We do still expect the economy here in the U.S. to slow. Higher interest rates, a slowdown in bank credit will continue filtering through the economy. Our expectation as of December was that real GDP growth would be below trend, just 1.2% for 2024, very similar for 2025. We do expect labor markets to continue cooling. We, we did see a bit of that in the second half of 23, with the unemployment rate ticking up a little bit over the coming year. But we've also got a boost from fiscal policy, we think, specifically the federal investments that are still coming under the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and even some pandemic stimulus money that's still to be spent. This is something that uh, Clarence spoke about just a few minutes ago. Uh, there is still money flowing through that actually has not been spent to date. So that's the economic context. What does it mean for states? Well, Fitch's view is that state governments as a whole are in a strong fiscal position. Fiscal 23, which ended on June 30 for most states, was the third straight year with major tax revenues coming in well ahead of original budget estimates. We took a look at data from the National Association of State Budget Officers, NASBO. Uh, we estimate that over the past three fiscal years, States collectively rang up about $350 billion in revenue surpluses from the three major taxes, the personal income tax, the sales tax, and the corporate income tax. So by revenue surpluses, I mean the difference between what states anticipated when they adopted their budgets and what actually ended up being collected in those years. We spent a lot of time talking about why this happened, so I won't go into the details. Suffice it to say that $5 trillion of federal economic stimulus is very helpful in spurring economic activity and tax revenues. In many ways, a more interesting question is what states did with all of that money and what does it mean going forward? At a basic level, there are really only two things states can do with all this extra money. They can save it or they can spend it. But we certainly saw states save a significant piece of that funding. Again, looking at some NASBO estimates, we see a $90 billion increase across total state rainy day fund balances between fiscal 20. 20 and 2023. Now, the median rainy day fund balance is a percent of spending, for example, grew from 8.4% to 12.3% in that, that same span. So a pretty significant increase. You had states like Illinois, Kansas, Nevada, Pennsylvania going from virtually nothing in reserves at the end of fiscal 2020 to building up reserve balances by the end of fiscal 23 to levels they've never reached before. Illinois went from $4 million to $2 billion. Kansas went from virtually nothing to 1.6 billion. Pennsylvania went from 22 million to over 5 billion in that, in that time period. But what about spending all that surplus tax revenue? That, that certainly happened as well. Some of that spending uh, to pay down debt, which we've seen in states like New Jersey with their debt defeasance and prevention fund or other liabilities, Illinois bills backlog, which has been reduced to a normal level of accounts payable, a clear positive for state budgets because it reduces future costs. Most states also spent at least some of their surpluses on infrastructure. Idaho is just one example. Their 2023 budget included $500 million 
for transportation projects, another $250 million to make some real headway in dealing with deferred maintenance at state-owned facilities. These projects certainly will require maintenance spending in the future, but spending the big capital dollars now means addressing the infrastructure liabilities that all governments face, but are usually not measured in a clear and consistent way across all states. And of course, most states also increase baseline spending. So not just the one time, but the baseline. We saw states allocate billions more to education, some of it to fund teacher and, and staff pay increases, to expand or start new programs throughout their budgets. These are areas that states are going to have to take a closer look at now as we're seeing the revenue cycle turn, which I'll talk about in just a minute. And the other way states spent their outsized revenue gains was with tax policy changes, namely tax rate cuts. We estimate 24 states adopted tax policy changes as part of the fiscal 24 budget processes. And that's, again, that's the year most states are in right now, fiscal 24. That was down from more than 30 in the prior year, but that's still a pretty high level of activity last year. And we are even seeing states where governors and legislators have talked about doing even more in this coming budget cycle. NASBO, again, surveyed state budget officials, found that they expect the cuts that were implemented already to reduce fiscal 24 revenues by just over 13 billion, which is on top of a, a 15 and a half billion dollar estimate for fiscal 23. And that's, this doesn't even include the, the more than 13 billion dollar property tax cut that Texas voters approved in November. That came sort of after the survey. Tax cuts were certainly part of the spending uh, that states did with uh, the surplus revenues. That's how it's been spent and how it's been used, those revenues. But now the revenue cycle has clearly turned. We look at data from the Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute. We also review individual states' monthly collection reports. And what we see is a very clear and, in many cases, very quick reversal of revenue growth towards contraction even. We started to see growth slowing in late 22 in a lot of states, and that decline really accelerated in April 2023, particularly for personal income tax or PIT collections. There are a number of factors driving this shift very weak capital markets performance in 2022, lower inflation, which means less price growth, uh, and then these tax cuts that I just spoke about. So how states manage the revenue adjustments is something we're paying particularly close attention to. Tax cuts, for example, can have unexpected consequences for taxpayer behavior and economic response, particularly cuts that cover broad aspects of tax policy, as we've seen in some states. And revenue volatility that goes beyond what a state expected and budgeted for, could pose near and medium-term fiscal risk. Take a state like Arizona, seeing their revenue drop faster than originally estimated uh, as a result of tax cuts. And they're not the only state by any means. Some states like West Virginia have adopted proposals that could eventually eliminate the individual income tax over time. That would be a, a pretty profound shift in their revenue structure. So these are some of the things that, that we're observing now and watching. Again, all of our state ratings are either on a stable outlook or uh, we have a several on a positive outlook. So in the near term, we, we don't see negative rating action coming out of this. We do think states are well positioned to absorb these challenges, but these are things that they have to be very well aware of and plan for. So with that, I'll turn it back to you, Bill. Well, thanks, Eric. And now we're, we're going to go right to the view from one state, in particular Colorado, with Mark Ferrandino, uh, the state budget director and and uh, former House Speaker, by the way. You've got a little slowdown in revenue, but I see you're smiling at the same time. So what's the picture as the new budget gets unveiled? 
great to build off what Eric said because it's very much what we're seeing in our state. We have so seen record increases in revenue during the pandemic. And Colorado is unique because of our Tabor limit that doesn't allow us to spend over a certain uh, amount and then we have to return money. Most of that money has gone back out actually to in rebates and refunds to individuals. But what we're seeing is that growth is slowing down. So we're getting back to more of a normal revenue. We're actually projecting about a two to two and a half percent reduction in revenue year over year, partly because we just saw such increases last year and we're seeing a slowdown in job growth that is starting to pull back revenue. That being said, I will say that over the last four forecasts we've done, we do quarterly forecasts, revenue each time has gone higher than what we had previously predicted. So we continue to be on, we keep saying the upside of the risk. We're waiting for the downside to come, but it doesn't seem like it's coming. And today's news seems to continue to indicate we're gonna continue to be on that upside. Now, as we look at the overall budget picture for the state, we are really pushing with our legislators who are in now working on the budget uh, and our proposal that we're back to what we would call a normal budget. We, over the last couple of years, you know, the start of pandemic was no one knew what was going to happen. And there were lots of reductions and trying to figure out what was going to happen. And then thanks to the federal government with all the investments, we had huge revenue growth. We had lots of money to be able to put in lots of different areas. Now we're back to what we would call normal budget, where revenue is growing at, you know, whether it's slow a little bit or growing up a little bit over the next couple of years, the demands for those revenues are outpacing the actual growth in revenue. Now, we are in a much better fiscal position, as Eric talked about. I remember I, when I was on the budget committee in the legislature, I was on that during the Great Recession. And we went from a 4% reserve to I think our lowest was a 0.5% reserve during the Great Recession. We're sitting right now with roughly a 15% reserve, something we've never had in this state's history, um, to be able to have that much revenue into reserve to protect for any downturn. Um, and that's not counting other pots of money that are sitting there. So if you take all the reserves, we're probably closer to 18 to 19% reserves in cash to be able to deal. That puts us in a much better place to be able to smooth things out and think through how we're doing stuff. Um, but we are seeing pressure on the budget. We talk about inflation and we talk about salaries. We are definitely, you know, vacancy rates in, in state jobs were really high during the pandemic. Those are starting to come down, but that's pressure on uh, salaries. Um, we're going to see an average of about a 6 to 7% increase in salaries for state employees this year because we're implementing a new step system to support our employees. And we saw a significant increase last year as well. So that's putting pressure, but we're also getting pressure from providers, whether it's Medicaid providers or other providers, for higher rate increases because their increased costs uh, are coming. So that's putting pressure on our budget when we think about long-term fiscal constraints. We also have the, as, as you heard, the roll off of the ARPA dollars. Uh, the federal dollars are coming to an end and we have to get them all obligated by Jan December, 2024. Now we got in Colorado roughly just for the state share of money, $3.8 billion. We have about one to 1.5 billion still to spend at the after the end of this fiscal year. And we are working to understand the new federal obligation rules and make sure that we're using those dollars uh, wisely and being able to use them over the next two to three years. Because that's our plan is to not just use them now, but to really help 
make those investments long-term. And I think Colorado did a really good, a lot of states did a really good job of not putting those into base budgets, but to really put those into one-time transformational investments, dealing with the revenue loss or other impacts of the pandemic that we saw for sure, but also doing things that are going to long-term save us and put us in a better place. We have seen tax cuts in Colorado. We had an income rate of 4.63. Now we're down to 4.4 in our income tax that has impacted revenue, but that has been able to be dealt with as revenue has increased. We also, as the governor unveiled our budget, our one of our biggest issues here in Colorado is property values. Colorado is one of the most expensive states, especially off the coasts. Home values continue to rise, and that is creating issues of affordability, availability of workforce within our state, whether it's both state employees as well as just any companies coming to Colorado who are looking for workforce. So we are looking at a huge investment of 100 to $200 million, whether tax credits or direct spending to support affordable and additional housing units coming online. That's a big focus on us. We know we need to address that here in Colorado. Housing will drive where we are. We're working on transit as well with that housing to make sure that in this new economy, people can get from one place to another um, when they have to maybe come in one or two days a week. You know, My office, we're in two days a week. So make it easier for people to live in different places and get to different places or so really investment in transit as well as we think about housing. We are doing really well. I'm, you know, we're in a strong position. We definitely see some, you know, headwinds in terms of revenue for the next year, but long term we see continued growth, but we also see the demand on those revenues and the demand on state government to just continue to grow. But we're, you know, I think as we said, we're in a strong place with our reserve and where we are and not overcommitting. That's one of the things we keep emphasizing with the legislature is we need to be smart of where we make investments and make sure we're not doing too much ongoing compared to one time, especially with those one-time dollars we're getting with those ARPA dollars. Overall, I think things in Colorado are looking well, but we definitely are worried about the downside, but it keeps we keep living in an upside scenario. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And let's hold those thoughts about, about taxes, tax cuts, and revenue, because we have whole bunch of questions from the audience about that. And let's go right to Minnesota and Mayor Kim Norton. In our discussions before this program, you were talking about many of the same issues, growth, housing, how you're spending your your ARPA money. And then there's that big deal with the, the Mayo Clinic. So give us give us the picture from a mid-sized city in mid-America. Happy to do that. And I think I should preface it by saying this is just our experience. And while I think Clarence, uh, at the beginning of the uh program outlined kind of an overview, and it rings true for us. Every community is somewhat different. Just to set the the, kind of the base, we're a town about 124,000 people. We're home in Minnesota to the state's largest employer, which as you mentioned is Mayo Clinic. We are pleased to say that our local economy has rebounded fairly well from the pandemic. I would say revenues for the city have returned to normal. Work from home, however, has impacted many of our businesses in the downtown area, and I think that's probably happening around the not only the country, but the world, particularly our lunchtime restaurants and businesses that counted on that lunchtime, you know, hour of people wandering about. 
I would say we also have experienced a lot of churn and uh, we have businesses come and go. Fortunately, we've had more coming than going. So I think overall we've seen progress there. One area that I've looked into a little bit more and talked to our administrator is that is an exception to this is our airport. As a small town, we also have an airport and business travel was very key to that. And with all the changes that have happened across the country in airport, I do think personal travel has increased, but we really relied on that business travel and the work from home has affected that as well, as well as decisions made by the airport industry itself. I would say we've been really thrilled to have an announcement by Mayo Clinic. Their announcement's called Bold Forward Unbound. And they committed to growing in Rochester to the tune of four or $5 billion. And we, we think uh, that's just on this one project of five buildings that they'll be doing. They've also continued to invest in their own buildings that are that are already there. So we know this is probably more like $7 billion over the course of the next six to 10 years, probably I think they're hoping on six, but it may be a little bit more than that. Our city is going to change substantially as they transform medicine. It will transform our city. So we're knowing that there'll be impacts that we have to prepare for as a growing community. One thing uh, maybe worth mentioning is that we thought we would be growing about 50 to 55,000 more people between now and 2040 thousands a year. And we had kind of counted on that. I do wonder if this announcement isn't going to actually impact that even more. And as they're talking about needing 2,000 employees to build out this investment of $5 billion. And we have our own city projects, many of them. As we grow, where's that workforce going to come from? And how are we going to house them? Because as Clarence and others have mentioned, housing is is a big issue across the country, including in Rochester. How are we going to house those folks? We don't have four or five years to build out housing to house these people. And I can talk in a minute about one idea that's floating around about that. So we have lots of opportunities and challenges moving ahead. Uh, We know these announcements as well as the announcement previously, our Destination Medical Center infrastructure investment um, that we've been working on for the last 10 years uh, has raised the property taxes for individuals in the downtown area. That's problematic for them during, of course, during the pandemic, but even as we have slowly recovered. So a huge issue. Also the issue of bank credit is we're seeing an impact on some folks who want to build housing, for instance, or have ideas for projects. And that tightening up of bank credit makes it a little more difficult for them and sometimes means an ask of a larger TIF from a city like Rochester. So as I mentioned, uh, Mayo's planning on 2,000 employees. We already had been knowing that our growth was going to mean we needed employees. And so I think I mentioned last time I was on, we received a grant and some federal funds on a Global Mayor's Challenge grant that meant we needed to build up our workforce. So we've been working on particularly looking at the built environment, the need for all those workers to build out our city and have been trying to assure access for women and minorities in the whole process of training people for that future investment that we know we need. And now with Mayo's investment, we know we need it even more. Solutions uh, that we're thinking about, and maybe we can talk about here moving ahead, are how can we utilize some of our older or empty buildings that as people work from home? What can we do as a city or the private industry? What can they do to help us utilize that space, perhaps for housing rather than retail? Some of our newer buildings are built out for retail on the first floor, and that isn't actualizing right now. So what could we be doing? And we might need help from our state and federal partners on some incentives to make those expensive changes in our buildings. And lastly, I'll just close with 
the Hyperloop. I mentioned earlier to some of you, high-speed rail and Hyperloop between the Twin Cities to Rochester is something we're kind of looking at. We're proposing a, to fund a study because we know we have a bio, bioscience and medical corridor between the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Rochester. And I think we would all benefit if we could somehow connect this area with some sort of high-speed option. So we are looking at that as a way to um, help the economy and our communities. Thank you so much, Mayor Norton. That uh, would be extraordinary, among other creative solutions that you and other leaders are looking to. We have lots of questions on challenges coming from tight labor markets, affordable housing, deteriorating downtowns, but we also have questions on uh, retrospectively. The surge of funding that we heard came, and we all know came to cities and states. Uh, retrospectively, what did get funded and what was not funded? Perhaps uh, we should be thinking more or should have been. Let's start with Clarence Anthony on that. Well, thank you. I was listening to uh, Mayor Norton's comments and I said, amen, amen, because it's really clear that as we go through this time of re introducing cities, downtowns especially, that is truly one of our biggest challenges. So as we look at what we're seeing at Wall Streets and the reports, I really think we got to continue to focus on how the bond market is going to and bond supply for projects for 2024 continues to raise higher and the need for more revenue to help us to implement some of the projects that we are trying to put into the municipal market space. So I think that as we look forward, that is one of our, our biggest challenges, making sure that we continue to grow the revenue for cities to be able to carry out these projects, be able to help upgrade our, our municipal rating is going to be key. We're just excited about the future. Thank you very much, Karen. So I'm understanding that a lot of money did go into infrastructure but still, we have a deficit. And your thoughts about going to capital markets, bond markets in particular, and access, it can't rely on the federal government, especially now, as funds are, in fact, already been obligated, which we'll come back to that. So let's turn to Eric Kim on bond issuance. What does it look like this coming year for muni bond issuance and going forward? Thank you, Susan. So Fitch doesn't do a, a formal or public forecast Fitch for Valley. There, there are a lot of entities out there, of course, that, that do. And perhaps some of the uh, issuer representatives here can talk about their, their plans. Last year, obviously, was well below historical levels in terms of bond issuance. And there are a lot of factors there, interest rates, of course, being one of them. And if that changes, it's, it does seem like that would be a potential spur. There is still a lot of investment happening even outside of uh, capital bonding, though. Um, there's a tremendous amount of federal money still flowing in. I talked about that a little while ago, um, and we've alluded to it. Obviously, there, there, there's still some ARPA money coming through. Um, chunk of it has been allocated. Some of that has been spent, but there's a surprising amount of money still, still out there to actually flow. And local governments and states have until the end of this year, I believe, to formally obligate that money. And then actually an additional two years, I think it is, to actually spend that down. So we are not near the end of that flow. And then, of course, there's all the other uh, legislation that I talked about and the money that will flow in uh, as a result of that. I can amplify on that a little, Susan, without doing a specific number. As Eric points out, le last year was was weak. We had an interest rate shock. I have a feeling that states and municipalities are going to adjust to the new interest rate environment. Our colleagues at Municipal Market Analytics, who have been on our 
program many times and who consult for the Volcker Alliance, they think that there's a good chance that climate risk investment, climate amelioration, whatever you want to call it, depends on the, the, the state you're in and the politics, that could be a surprise factor in uh, holding up municipal bond issuance. It's kind of a stay tuned, uh, stay tuned, fingers crossed situation. And I had I had a follow up question for Eric and and Clarence and and Mark and the mayor and, and and Mark too. We had some questions on states and cities how they spent their ARPA money, their state and local fiscal recovery fund money. Earlier, uh, a couple of months ago, we published a uh, an issue paper that mentioned six states we declared had an elevated risk of fiscal cliff because a lot of their money had gone into the revenue replacement category basically went into the general fund and kind of disappears from there. There's a danger of states and cities using federal federal one-time money to support ongoing programs. How much, maybe Mayor Norton, you want to start with that? How did your, your fiscal recovery fund money get, get spent? And where are we all going with the, the remainder of this $350 billion? Well, I can address from our city's perspective. Because of the formula, we received a very relatively I won't say very, a relatively small amount, 17 million is all we got as a city. And when I talk to some of my colleagues in the hundreds of millions, it, it doesn't seem like much. But um, we had kept a zero tax levy to try to be respectful of the impact of the pandemic on our residents during the pandemic. So we did use 7 million of it to help us ease back into, as our tax, our revenue increased, we eased into that that first year and used 7 million for that. And then the administration created what they called a budget stability fund. And they had some guiding principles for how the remainder would use would be used about that 13 million. And it was on uh, facility investment for sustainability, support for people, including uh, DEI housing and, and other grants, a reopening and resiliency fund and supporting innovation. So the city council approved each of those expenditures from that stability fund. And I have been told as of today that those $13 million that we received are all spent and accounted for. And that's what I have to say from what we did here. How about in Colorado? At first, we used it for a lot of the pandemic needs. Um, we knew we had issues for staffing, especially our 24-7 facilities, whether it's corrections or mental hospitals and other areas of there, as well as just public response for that. But then as we looked at the long-term stability and needs, we definitely tried to balance the one-time versus the ongoing investment. So a lot of our money went into one-time things, whether it was IT infrastructure, whether it was capital infrastructure, we set up and helped to support transformational work within our behavioral health sector to try and set up systems, put some one-time money to help spur workforce areas in there because we knew we need more workforce in that so that that can then be sustained for a longer time. A lot of it, I will say, we were really smart working with the legislature and a lot of states did this to think about that long-term investment in there and one-time things that will save us in the out years. I will say there's lots of conversations now about the next two years. And I said earlier, the obligations deadline is December, 2024. And we still have years after to be able to spend it. But the issue that the federal government and treasury is, I don't think they fully understand how states and localities budget. 
and we have provided comments and concerns with what Treasury's rules are. But what you're going to see a lot of states do is move money to revenue reclassification and spend it immediately to free up dollars and make sure that we, what we would say, de-risk the money from returning to the federal government and use it for things that we know are allowable uses that will free up general fund that then we can put into those other things that we've said are long-term. And one of the things is important is that as we free up those monies, we put it back into the one-time and not ongoing expenditures because we don't have that money to be able to continue to grow and support those programs. And there are some things, and when you look at where states put it, sometimes they're doing it not because they're putting in long-term obligations or long-term needs, but they're putting it to make sure they're meeting federal requirements while also making those investments. And that's what we're trying to do in those one-time transformational things. That's a really important point that that Mark is making there. Um, it's something that we, we saw a lot of. It relates to the fungibility of state budgets and local government budgets. It relates to the restrictions around the use of federal aid. And we saw a number of states do exactly what Mark said, which is take that ARPA aid, put it towards revenue replacement, because that was broad, a broad category, easy to, to sort of explain and justify in terms of the usage of the federal government, but then recognize that they had revenue coming in on their side, state revenue, they could then use to do the one-time things in a sense, build up reserves, for example, that wasn't an allowable use of that revenue funding, all right, the, the federal aid. But if you allocate the federal aid towards revenue replacement, you then have state revenue you can do for whatever purpose you want to do. So that, that's a really important piece to understand. So when you look just at the numbers of the amount of money that was allocated to revenue replacement, for example, it's 40% or so when you look at the overall spending as of the last data from Treasury, um, that does not mean that there's a 40% fiscal cliff coming. So I think it's a critical piece to understand when you look at that, that data. Bill, I'll, I'll also add to that briefly and just frame my response by saying, out of all the industries, local government was the one that never shut down during the pandemic. I mean, we were the ones that were providing all of the services, uh, EMS, medical service, police and fire. City government never shut down. So as we look at and talk about how we allocated those funds, from the National League of Cities perspective, we thought of it similar to all the other speakers and Eric and, and the mayor talked about. We were talking about filling gaps that existed and was caused by the pandemic, one, but the gaps that we saw in data in terms of helping on areas like housing, workforce, small business impacts. And we use those dollars to help our cities reimagine themselves. We also, again, about the 40% revenue replacement, that is accurate in terms of what we're seeing in our ARPA tracker, investment tracker by city governments. We're seeing that. We're also seeing 11% of the funds have gone toward infrastructure projects that have been on the books for years that create job opportunities and spur the uh, economy. And about 11% of the funds have helped communities implement. We talk about mental health, addiction recovery, because we did see an increase in local communities during the pandemic of homeless and mental health challenges internal to the government structure, yes, but also external in the community. And so there's a lot to dig in, but the real response is local government was the one 
that was on the front line every day. Our mayors and our council members and city managers and our, I'd say, we always say those first responders. But even to me, the city clerks are first responders and not just police and fire. So I know I have to do my job and pitch as the National League of Cities, the role of local government, but we never shut down. And in fact, beyond that, you hired, and unlike the last recession, the fiscal strength uh, coming in part from federal support added not just people on the ground to to help with the challenges, but the overall economy. So Mark, let me turn to you on a projection of, are we likely to see continued hiring by state and local governments? Will that continue to add to the fiscal strength of the economy? How difficult is it to overcome the a wage talent and uh, higher into vacancies. Yeah, I expect more employment growth among state and local governments. I mean, if you look at employment today, both at the state level and the local level, it's only back to where it was right before the pandemic. And if you go back pre-pandemic and you look at the trend in growth, we were getting growth as you would expect, given the growth in the population and demographic need. So I I would expect, yes, we'll get more job creation here going forward. And interestingly, in recent months, the bulk of the job growth we're observing is actually in state and local government. And I think that might go to, in part, the fact that state and local governments had trouble competing early on in the recovery with private sector employers who are willing to pay much higher wages. And of course, state and local governments just don't have that latitude to pivot as quickly. And so they were just stuck. They were shut out of the labor market. But now that the private sector has uh, rehired and employment levels are back to uh, where private sector employers want them and wage growth has moderated, I think it opens up an opportunity now for state and local governments to kind of right size their employer base. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we should expect to see continued solid job creation at state and local government. Let, local thank government. you, Mark. Let me, let me turn to Mark Perugino for the picture from Colorado and then perhaps Mayor as well. Mark? Yeah, I, I think Mark is exactly right. What we saw, I'll just use an example of our Department of Corrections. We were up to 28% vacancy rates within our Department of Corrections. We're down now to vacancy rates at the 15 to 17%. So there's still significant room for growth because we need to hire those individuals. And we are starting to adjust compensation to address that, as well as with the slower labor market growth in terms of jobs availability. We were at a place where we were over two job postings for every applicant in Colorado. That now is under um, two, and we project that to continue to come down. So with that, the uh, locals and states have been able to, and state has been able to hire more individuals and fill those vacant positions. We are not where we were pre-pandemic in terms of staffing percentage. And so that will continue over the next year or two to start continue to continue to get those vacancies down so we can be more at the, usually we're about five to 10%, depending on the job classification. And I think we're we're not there. We'll probably be there hopefully in the next year or so. Excellent, Mark. Mayor. Our city is growing, and I've talked about that already. That poses the need, for instance, more project management for boots on the ground employees. And we have had a tougher time uh, recruiting folks into city government, um, hoping that changes. One of our biggest holes, if you will, is in uh, law enforcement. Many cities, ours is in good shape compared to many of my colleagues from across the country, but they are unable to fill. They don't even have 
applicants. And our applicant pool for law enforcement sometimes is, you know, six or 10 people, as opposed to the need for a community that's growing to grow our force. We can't even keep up with our, our current numbers because there just aren't applicants in the uh, pipeline. So I think we're in a little bit of a difficult spot right now. And, and I will say one of the things we did during the pandemic is the city of Rochester chose not to lay off one, any employees. So we did have a freeze on at that time, but we did not lay anyone off. We were committed to maintaining the wonderful staff that we had. And so that's a positive, I think, and probably helped us more than some other cities. But but there is a there is a workforce issue right now. And, and as I mentioned, particularly in in law enforcement. So the workforce issue is one negative, and we'll come back to the housing affordability, but there's another question we have about a negative, another negative part of the economy, and that, of course, is commercial real estate, which is perhaps the worst hit part in an otherwise pretty optimistic. And we have a question of how that might affect uh, state and local budgets, actually. And then let's turn to the downtown physical issues of empty office and empty retail. Mark, you have thoughts on commercial real estate and its impact on the overall economy and state and local budgets? Yeah, clearly that's a a problem area, particularly uh, office in big downtown urban areas like my our, our hometown, Susan, of Philadelphia or Chicago or, you know, the poster child of San Francisco. And that will hit property tax revenue. I'm speaking from memory, so I don't have this exactly right, I don't think, but I think Overall property tax revenue annualized is about 700 billion. Of that, maybe 150, 200 billion is commercial real estate. The rest is residential. So let's say CRE prices, commercial real estate prices fall, be pessimistic, 10%. So that would ultimately, after a long chain of events, reduce property tax revenue by what, $15 billion. So that gives you a sense of magnitude. Now, obviously, that's very isolated to specific communities and localities. So the pain is going to be more difficult, like a, a New York City or San Francisco is going to feel a lot more than I was assume a Rochester, although they probably feel it as well. That kind of gives you context. And 10% is a big number. I mean, you know, maybe office is down more than that, but the other property types aren't nearly as vulnerable. And really, we're talking about big urban centers, you know, where the where the problem lies. So it's it's an issue. It's not great, but I think in the grand scheme of things, it's manageable for at least for most communities. Now that I'm I'm completely abstracting from what remote work and hybrid work mean for you know what the mayor was talking about in Rochester to those communities. That is an issue, but in terms of property tax revenue. Gotcha. Um, Thank you very much. Let's turn to those livability and empty downtowns. First you perhaps mayor and then to Clarence on Solutions, perhaps. Yeah, and I talk to deal with the housing affordability problem at the same time. Right. We have a lack of housing still coming out of that 2008 housing issue and recession. And uh, we just haven't had as many built as we need, certainly. We are trying to look at our downtown buildings. I've been in contact with Minneapolis-St. Paul's mayors about asking the legislature for some help in funding, really it's retrofitting those buildings with the plumbing and wiring, mostly plumbing, that would be needed in order to turn them into housing. And the other pieces I mentioned before is many, many of our newer buildings, and we seem to be doing better with new buildings rather than filling buildings that are already empty uh, right now, which I find kind of interesting. But how do we make that first floor retail space 
into something else if retail isn't coming in right now? And is there a way to, and I know some cities are turning those into housing and we need to find a way to do that too. So thank you, those Mayor. are a couple of things. And yes, of course, Bill, back to you. I think either yep. we, do we have time to give Clarence the last word? Go ahead, Clarence, 30 seconds. I, I was, I was going to say I'm a former mayor. I'm not, I'm sure, I'm not long-winded that much. Clearly, we're all addressing the issue. We recognize our downtowns need help. And there are cities like Boston and Minneapolis that are giving a 75% tax credit, tax break to uh, developers and trying to make sure they tr transform. Those things are not easy. We can say, let's use those existing buildings and convert them to housing because we have a housing supply challenge. It's not as easy as we think. And that's why we're exploring, digging, and we're working to come up with solutions. But thank, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We're going to dig into that issue uh, in a forthcoming in a forthcoming special briefing. But right now, as much as I'd like to continue this discussion for the next two hours, we've all got day jobs and you've got day jobs on the panel. And that's it. So that's it for this edition of Special Briefing. Thank you so much to Susan Walker, to our panelists and to you, our audience, for joining Special Briefing today. Contacts uh, are up on the screen, and you can come back to our websites and catch up on all these contacts if you want to get in touch with the panelists. We'll be back on February 29th with a deep dive into something Eric Kim's been watching, the wave of state tax cuts since the pandemic. So watch our websites and your email for details. Thanks also to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. And special thanks to the folks behind the mic, Graham Dowd, Noah Wynn-Ritzenberg, Idealis Foster, Arden Jordan, and Diana Lind. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.